early. Speaking of starting today, I'm starting a new series of sermons today. We are going to take the next many weeks to go through the book of Colossians. Uh, We're going to kind of slow pace it through the book of Colossians here, as I mentioned to you. Uh, The Bible tells the story of the Apostle Paul and, and portrays him as a traveling missionary and evangelist who worked throughout the Roman Empire about a generation after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul would travel from city to city. Sometimes he would just be in a city briefly. Sometimes he would stay there quite a a long period of time. He had uh, kind of an entourage that traveled with him, different folks that moved in and out of his life, depending on which region he was in or what part of the world he was in. But Paul was the common thread through these missionary journeys. On one of his missionary journeys, you can read about it in Acts chapter 19, he visited a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a a very big city, a very important city in what is now modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus was one of those places where Paul stayed a lengthy time. He was there at least two, perhaps as long as three years in the city of Ephesus. It was likely during the time that Paul was living and working in Ephesus that he met a man named Epaphras. You like that? Epaphras, he met in Ephesus. I'm going to say that five times fast today and get myself in real trouble. It was likely while in Ephesus that Paul met a man by the name of Epaphras. Now, fortunately for my tongue, Epaphras was not from Ephesus. Epaphras was from a nearby city, a smaller city than Ephesus. Epaphras was from Colossae. Epaphras became an important part of Paul's entourage. He's referred to a handful of times in Paul's stories. We know that he was a close colleague of Paul's. Epaphras, as I said, was from Colossae. So at some point, we don't know exactly when, Epaphras went back to Colossae and he himself proclaimed the gospel in his hometown. He presumably started a church there because at some point we are aware that there is a young fledgling church started by Epaphras in the city of Colossae. Now, Paul himself never made it to Colossae. He just knew about this church because of his association with his friend and now colleague, Epaphras. But at some point, sometime later, while Paul was actually in prison, he learns through his relationship with Epaphras that the church in Colossae is struggling. They're a young congregation and there's a lot of pressures. They receive the gospel with joy, but as they grow up in the faith, things get a little bit more complicated. There's a lot of pressure on these new believers from the surrounding culture to maybe uh, believe other things than the gospel that they first understood. There's questions they have about, well, how do we do this or how do we do that? And some of these things are beginning to present real threats to the integrity of the gospel that they have believed. And so Paul, although he's in prison, decides that what he's going to do is to write a letter to them to hopefully help them sort some of these things out. And so along with some help from his apprentice, Timothy, Paul writes them a letter to encourage them and to help them take the next healthy steps in their relationship with Jesus. That letter that he writes appears in our Bibles the New Testament book of Colossians. We call it the book of Colossians, but as I've said, it's not really a book at all. It's just a letter that an evangelist, a a pastor, a missionary wrote to a church that he had never met, 
but a church that he loved very much, a church that he very, very deeply cared for. As I mentioned a week ago, I have printed out the text of that letter without the distractions of footnotes and verses and chapter markings, all of which are much later additions to help us catalog the Bible. I've printed out the text of that letter as it's translated in the New Living Translation. You can grab a copy of it on the information booth. I encourage you to do that and just read through it as it was meant to be read as just a letter from a pastor saying, here's some things that I think you might find helpful. We're going to read that letter. I encourage you to read it in its entirety, but we're going to read it, as I've said, very, very slowly, just kind of one little chunk at a time for the next several weeks. And so let's do that together. The letter begins this way. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which came from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras. Our beloved co-worker, he is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. That's as far as we're going to go this week. I grew up in a family where I was an only child. Many of you know that later on, when I was in junior high, my parents adopted twin boys. They were toddlers at the time, so... We went from being a family of three to a family of five. But in my formative childhood years, as I sometimes jokingly call them, the good years, <laughs> we were a family of three. It was just me. It was my mom and my dad. There were three of us in the household. Now, my aunt and uncle and my cousins lived in the same town. My Aunt Joanne and Uncle Dane are part of this church family. As you know, growing up, there were two cousins in that branch of the family tree, and we saw them all the time. As a matter of fact, in preschool, I saw my cousins almost every day. My mom was their childcare provider while my aunt worked. And so I certainly knew from a young age that my family was me, mom, and dad, and then could expand to the next kind of concentric ring to it. Met my aunt, my uncle, and my two cousins as well. Early on, I was close with my grandparents. They lived out of town, but almost every year we would either go on a vacation and see them in New Jersey where they lived, or they would come and visit us, so I knew grandma and grandpa well. My dad's side, we had similarly one set of aunt and uncles and, and my cousins that lived nearby. Um, and though his parents passed when I was young, before their passing, I knew my grandma and grandpa on that side. As time went on and I got older, I got to meet more and more members of my family. We would go on vacation with uh, and visit and see the aunts and the uncles, and there were more and more cousins. And then, as I said, we of course adopted my brothers, and so my own household grew at that point. 
I had the experience that I think many of you have had. As a child, you go to uh, either a family reunion or, or perhaps a wedding, sometimes a funeral, and your parents introduce you to somebody you don't know, you've never seen before, but they say, this is your second cousin or this is your aunt or your uncle that you've never met. This is your great aunt or your great uncle. And so over time, my understanding of just exactly who is in my family grew and grew and grew. I got married and inherited an entire family of in-laws, and then I became a parent and added my own children to the family. It's just that over time, the tribe grows and grows and grows. As I got older, the more I learned about just how big my family was. It started out being just me and mom and dad, and now there are dozens upon dozens of people that at some level or another, I can recognize a family connection with. That's just part of growing up, right? Our tribe is bigger than just the people that we see in our house every day. And, and learning that and learning about who those people are is just part of growing up. And Paul's opening words to this young church family, I think tell them exactly that principle. He gives them exactly the same message about growing up. His words to them say this, you are part of a great big tribe. You are part of a great big tribe. Now we don't know exactly, I'm sorry, we do know where Colossae was, but we don't know a whole lot of details about what this city was like during the time that Paul wrote his letter to them. We haven't done much modern archaeology on the site of Colossae, so we don't know some of the details about this city that we do know about some other cities in Bible times. Uh, one thing we do know is that it was a city, it was of substantial size, but it was not as big as some of the other cities in the area. Ephesus, that I already referred to, was a much bigger city. Laodicea was nearby. Laodicea was a bigger city. Colossae was a medium-sized city. We don't think it was nearly as big as those others. I did find one researcher who has estimated uh, that there were probably 25,000 or so people living in Colossae at or about the time Paul was writing his letter to them. So let's just say maybe they're right, 25,000 people. For reference point, that's about the same as the population of Lyle, the town to our west. Several of the suburbs, including Downers Grove, are much bigger than that, but Lyle has about 25,000 people in that. I bring that up because it is entirely possible, probably probable, can I say that? Probably, probable? Thank you, Mike. It's probable that the church in Colossae that Paul was writing to compromised five households of people, maybe 10. Again, we don't know for sure, but that would be pretty consistent with how these New Testament churches were functioning in their early days. So in a community of 25,000 people, Maybe five households were gathering and worshiping together. Maybe 10 at the most were gathering and worshiping together. I bring that up because I think the folks in that Colossian church felt like they were pretty small. I think they probably felt like they were pretty insignificant. I think they probably knew the names of everybody else in their community that was a follower of Jesus Christ because it wasn't that hard to keep track of such a small group. I think they knew them. They knew this is who we are and this is who they are. I think it might have been difficult for them to see themselves as part of this growing network of believers that stretched through the entire empire. I think it might have been tough for them to trust that there were others just like them in other cities, in other places. 
others who were on their side, others who were experiencing the same kinds of things. But Paul wants them to know that right from the very beginning of his letter. He says, it's time to start growing up and getting to know the rest of your family. You are part of a great big tribe. And when you know that you're part of a great big tribe, one thing that you can do is you can trust in their faithfulness. Trust in their faithfulness. Now, I want to remind you, Paul has never meant, he has never met the Colossian Christians. All he knows about them is what Epaphras has told him. And yet, look at how he refers to these believers. Right at the very beginning, in verse 2, he calls them faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying, look, I might not know your name. I might not know you as an individual, but I know whose name you bear. I know what family you come from, and that family is known by the faithfulness of their father. On my aunt and uncle's side, uh, one of my cousins who came along a little later is, is Emily. Emily was born when I was a teenager, and so when I was in high school, she was a toddler. One of the things I remember about Emily at that age is she loved her family. Most two-year-olds are a little bit sheepish about getting to know other people. But Emily, you could get her to hug anyone on the planet by telling her, oh, that's your cousin. That's your uncle. She would, oh, okay, and she'd just go hug them. And trust me, as teenagers, that's exactly what we did with Emily. We lied to her sometimes. She just loved the idea that if you were family, you were safe and you were okay. That's my cousin, and she'd toddle right up to him and sit in their lap and hug him, and that was just fine with her. Trust in the faithfulness of your family. When I think of faithfulness, I think of this brother. I have a picture. You can put it up, Robert. <coughs> this is from our ministry in Haiti. There on the left is me, and on the right, some of you will recognize our missionary, Malcolm Henderson. We're both looking down. I'd like to tell you we're deep in prayer in this moment, and that's possible, but it's equally likely that there was just an interesting lizard on the ground. <laughs> I don't really remember, but the man in the middle of the picture in the bright red Ohio State t-shirt is a Haitian man by the name of Latigue. I put this picture up because when I think of faithfulness, I think of Latigue. I think of Latigue. Some Haitians that we know in this part of the country work for the ministry that's, that's there. They work for the Hendersons and Karis Ministries. Uh, Latigue doesn't hold a formal position with them. He doesn't draw a paycheck from Karis. But wherever there's work to be done, Latigue is there. Every one of the teams that we've sent over the course of five years to work in Haiti, they've all gotten to know Latigue because he's omnipresent. Wherever we go, Latigue is there. Whatever we do, Latigue is working. Wherever people need to hear the gospel, Latigue is present. If a brother or a sister needs help, Latigue is there to help them. He is absolutely 100% faithful. He's just always there. Now here's the thing about Latigue. Uh, I had the privilege of baptizing him in water on our very first missions trip. He was actually baptized along with our very own Nancy Larson. Um, Latigue had just become a brand new believer at that point. Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, Latigue was a voodoo priest. And he was a particularly dark and evil voodoo priest. Latigue, on two different occasions, has sacrificed his own children in ceremonies. Latigue has eaten human flesh. Latigue is one of the most, I'm sorry, was one of the most evil human beings on the face of the planet until he met Jesus. 
until he met Jesus. And I can tell you this, and anybody who has been in Haiti with us, and I see several of you in the congregation today, I'm confident would agree with me. If I was lost in a village in Haiti after dark and had gotten separated, if I was in a sticky situation, if I didn't know where I was or what to do next, I would trust my brother with my life because he's faithful. Now think of that. You're in a terrible situation. You're scared and you're out and you're alone. What are you going to do? Ah, look for the guy who used to sacrifice human beings. He'll take care of you. That's what the transformation of the gospel of Jesus looks like. This is part of my family. This is part of your family. And you know what you can do when you see Jesus in somebody? You can trust their faithfulness. You can trust their faithfulness. Growing up in a big tribe means knowing your responsibilities. And Paul is quick to remind us that when we recognize how big our tribe is, we have responsibility. And our first responsibility is to pray for them. Paul models this principle for the Colossian church. He doesn't just tell them that they need to pray. He models it for them. In verse 3, he says, we always pray for you. Is what we do. We don't know you. We haven't met you. We can't interact with you. We can't picture what your faces look like. But we always pray for you. An important part of growing up is learning that my prayer time isn't just for me. My prayer time isn't even just for the people that I'm closest to or that know me best. My prayer time is for everyone in my tribe. And one of the most important things you can do as a Christian is to pray for other Christians. And just like the Apostle Paul, you don't necessarily have to know him real well in order to do it real well. It doesn't, your effectiveness in prayer isn't predicated on how well you know somebody. We have missionaries from around the world that visit us on a regular basis. You guys will remember just a couple of weeks ago, we had an opportunity to meet a missionary that we've been connected with for a lot of years. But to my knowledge, none of us had ever met face to face before. Brian was here and told us about his work in Senegal. Now, coincidentally, and it purely was a coincidence, on the week that Brian was here, the latest issue of Worldview magazine featured the work of missionaries in Senegal. Some of you might not realize this. Worldview magazine, we always have available on our missions table in the back corner of there. Once a month, there's a different magazine highlighting the work of missionaries around the world. And as it happened, the current issue of Worldview magazine happens to be about schools, Christian schools for children in the nation of Senegal. Now, you'll never see Brian's name mentioned in the magazine because there's security issues that prohibit the publication of specific names. But the articles in that magazine are very much about the man in the ministry that we got the opportunity to hear from. If you don't grab Worldview Magazine, if you haven't made that your habit, I encourage you to do it. Pick it up. Find some people. You can use that as a prayer tool. One of your responsibilities as a follower of Christ, as a part of this great big tribe, is to pray for the others in the tribe. Worldview is a great way of doing that. It's not the only way you can do that. There's a lot of different things, a lot of different tools that you can use to learn more, to give yourself some ideas about how to pray for other believers. There's websites. Voice of the Martyrs is a famous one that will tell you about the plight of Christians around the world. But look, you don't need any of those. You could just watch the evening news. 
I hesitate to say that because many of you I know are like me. We're so frustrated with the evening news. It's like, boy, I'm going to need to pray if I watch the evening news. But try this. Turn on the evening news or get online to your favorite news source, whatever it might be, and just read through with a prayerful heart and attitude. There is not a single story that you will encounter that does not at some level involve your brothers or sisters in Christ. And so you can become a prayer warrior just by digesting the news. You hear a story about some other part of the world. Lord, I know there's believers there. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. I pray that you would empower them to be your light in a dark place. Whatever the situation might be, I encourage you to find a habit that stretches you. It's one of the reasons we we introduce one another to missionaries so often. It's one of the reasons we have a missions table. Right now there's planting partner stuff back there, but typically you're going to see scrolling slides of, of brothers and sisters, missionary partners from around the world. We have a responsibility, just as the Colossians had a responsibility to recognize just how big this tribe is and say, hey, we're going to be, we're going to be in prayer for the members of our family. <coughs> and one of the, when we pray, one of the most important things we can do is thank God for them. Did you realize that one of the reasons that God is raising up believers in Senegal, for instance, or anywhere else in the world that you want to think of, one of the reasons he's doing that is because he wants to use them for your benefit. I want you to think about that. He wants to use them for your benefit. Part of growing up is recognizing that every member of the tribe adds value to the entire tribe. Every member of the tribe makes us all that much more like Jesus intended us to be. There is value added by every member of the tribe. I think sometimes, especially as American Christians, we have this lens that says, well, it's a good thing that those boys and girls in Senegal have us. If they didn't have us, they wouldn't have the money to fund their schools. If they didn't have us, they wouldn't have the missionaries to go there. If they didn't have us, they wouldn't have the medical knowledge to, to live happy and healthy lives. If they didn't have us, well, I think the Holy Spirit would say, well, what about you? What if you didn't have them? What if you didn't have them? Part of Part of the connectedness that Paul is talking about is this idea that we each need every other part. And so when you recognize somebody that maybe you didn't realize was part of your tribe, thank God for them. Paul models this in verse three again. He says, as we pray, we give thanks to God. That's what we're doing. I want you to think about that again. The great apostle Paul is saying about these unknown Christians in Colossae, man, I am so thankful for you. We are all better because you're on board. We are all more like Jesus wants us to be because you guys are doing your thing in Colossae. I thank God for you. I want to show you another picture. This is, uh, yeah, go ahead. That's him. Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatch. Pastor Hatch is the pastor of the New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church in West Garfield Park. For those of you that don't know the city of Chicago as well, West Garfield Park is one of the more dangerous and violent communities. This is Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatch of the New, I always get this wrong, uh, New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church in West Garfield Park. 
uh, Pastor Hatch is a community activist. The picture I have of him there, you can tell, is, is from a news channel. He is addressing uh, the news media at a, I don't even know where this came from, but one of many, many gatherings uh, that, that he's a part of. He is a community activist. If you watch the Chicago news over a period of time, at some point you will see or hear from him. He, he is on there a lot. He has been, though he is not currently on their staff, he has for many years been one of the primary leaders at Operation Rainbow Push. Uh, Pastor Hatch is a close friend and colleague of uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Um, can I tell you this? And I, I, you don't, please don't raise your hand or say amen. I'm not asking you to disclose any. I'm just going to disclose a little myself. I don't like Jesse Jackson. Um, having grown up in Chicago, I, I didn't know about Pastor Hatch, but I see, I see Jesse Jackson on the news all the time, and I, I've just never been a, a big fan. Um, I disagree with a lot of the ways that he has handled himself politically and, and publicly, and I always felt like his particular flavor of Christian ministry doesn't look very much like what I'm used to. It doesn't look very much like what I learned. Um, I never knew Dr. Hatch, but I certainly knew his association. And I was never a big fan. So a few years ago when I was in seminary, I found out that one of the classes I was going to be required to take was going to be taught by Dr. Marshall Hatch. And can I just be honest with you? I was like, oh, come on. I wasn't feeling real good about that. And then I found out that the class that I had to take was a class on pastoral ethics. I thought, well, that's ironic. Pastoral ethics is essentially a class on how to be a pastor, how to make decisions as a pastor, how to know what to do and what not to do. I don't know what to be involved in. And I'm, you know, kind of like by association saying, I just don't think I want to be involved in the kind of things that Dr. Hatch is involved in. I mean, it would be one thing to take a New Testament survey class with him or, or maybe a, a church history class with him, but really like pastoral ministry, like this is who you want me to learn pastoral ministry from. I, I didn't feel really good about that going in. Actually, the night before my first day of class, I was watching the evening news and who do you suppose showed up at a, at a rally? Well, the Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatch of the New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church in West Garfield Park, Chicago. Can I tell you this? That was one of the best classes I ever took in seminary. I absolutely grew to love this man and his teaching. Wonderful, wonderful teacher who taught me so many, so many great things about pastoral ministry. And when I think of Dr. Hatch, I give thanks for him. I give thanks for him. I'm so thankful. My perspective on the gospel and what it means to be a pastor was enriched by the time that I spent with him. And here's the thing. I don't think I'm ever going to become a pastor in the same way that he's a pastor. I don't imagine myself. I don't see myself being like him. But I will tell you this, without question, I am a better pastor because of what I learned from him. I'm a better pastor because of the time that I spent with him. And I believe this church is a better church because of what I and others have learned from Dr. Hatch. And you know what? An important part of growing up is maybe shattering some of those walls and some of those paradigms we have and learning just how big our tribe really is. Having a big tribe means we're going to meet people who don't look like us. 
It means we're going to meet people who we might not even get along with in another context. The temptation is to be overwhelmed by all the ways in which we are different. But growing up requires you to emphasize your oneness. Emphasize your oneness. Now we're going to hear Paul talk a whole lot about this throughout his letter to the Colossians. He's going to come back to this principle of oneness time after time after time again. But he starts it here. He plants the seeds right here in verse 6. He says, it's the same good news that came to you is going out over all the world. It's the very same good news. So you guys in Downers Grove are hearing the same good news that they're hearing in, in, in Dr. Hatch's congregation in West Garfield Park. And that's the same good news that Latigue is preaching down in Haiti. It's the same good news. When you read the Bible, I'll give you this principle here. When you see that phrase, good news, if you prefer, you can insert the word gospel. Good news is just a modern English translation of the older English word gospel. And so it's all the same word depending on which translation of the Bible you're reading. Depending on which of those phrases has has more meaning to you, you can interchange them. This same gospel that came to you is going out over all the world. The gospel is the same. The gospel doesn't change. The people who receive it come from all different walks of life. There's a lot of variety in the tribe, as Paul would say, but the gospel is the same and you ought to emphasize your oneness. Emphasize your oneness. Now this was a mind-blowing concept for the Colossians. In their day, as in most of the Bible times, most of the areas and regions and cultures where the Bible was actually written, in their day, religion was a very, very nationalistic thing. There were very specific gods who worked for very specific groups of people. And so, in this case, the the Jews had their god, but the Romans had their gods, plural, But the barbarian tribes on the eastern reaches of the empire had their gods. And the North Africans had had their gods. And all of those gods worked for their particular people. And the thing about those, those nationalities is they were typically in conflict with each other. They were rivals of one another. And so good news from one god usually meant bad news for a different group of people. You follow what I'm saying? If if the Roman gods were happy, the barbarians over on the east end of the empire were probably thinking our gods are probably pretty mad because it, it means bad things are happening for us. And so when Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, you Colossians, who by the way, were not Jewish. These were Gentile believers. You Colossians are hearing the very same good news the rest of the world is hearing. It's the same good news. It's good news for all. Paul is proposing to them that Jesus, although he had very clearly come as a Jewish man, was proclaiming that the favor of God was not over a particular nation, but over men and women from every tribe. That the good news that Jesus proclaimed would be good news for all people, not just for some. Emphasize your oneness, he says. Recognize that the good news you received is the same good news that's going out around the world. I have another picture to show you. These are the people of Green Sky Hill United Methodist Church. This is a small congregation in the very northern tip of Michigan. 
And our own Connie Reynolds has property up in Michigan that she stays at most summers. Connie's been away most of the summer and just been back with us two or three weeks now. This is from her neck of the woods up in Michigan. Connie stopped by the office this week and told me about this church because she worshiped with them a handful of times while she was there this summer. Now, Connie uh, has been a part of this church. She's been a part of other Pentecostal churches. United Methodist is, these are good Christian people, but it's not necessarily the denomination that I would have expected Connie to go and visit. Um, But Connie, as she told the story, said, well, I went to visit them because I found out that partly because of COVID, they were actually worshiping outside of their building, just in the woods on their property. And I thought, well, that'd be a cool way to go to church. Let's go to church in the woods and go, you know, worship outside in the beauty. So, so she ended up visiting this church. Now here's the thing. Not only are the people of Green Sky, not only are they United Methodists, the people of Green Sky are also Native American. And so this congregation is very distinct in its cultural background. This is a Native American church, specifically, I believe it's people of the Ottawa nation uh, that are indigenous there. And so their worship, just like our worship, is influenced and informed by their culture. It doesn't mean that they're worshiping a different God. It just means that the style with which they come to worship is influenced and informed by their culture. That means their music is a little different. It means the language in their prayers and the kinds of things that are important to them is a little bit different. Their perspectives on the world are a little bit different. Uh, The priorities that they have for their community are a little bit different. And they're not a different faith. It's just a different kind of people. But here we have our sister Connie from Downers Grove who goes up and spends a few months and finds this whole other corner of the tribe and says, I'm one with you and I want to come worship with you. I think that's a picture of what it looks like to recognize just how big the tribe really is. We have to emphasize our oneness with our brothers and sisters. And one good way to do that is this, recognize your connection. It might not seem like this little church in Colossae could have much to do with the international ministry of the great apostle Paul. But Paul sees it otherwise. Look at what he says in verse seven. He says, Epaphras, your boy, your guy, Epaphras, he's here helping us on your behalf. Can you read between the lines here and see what Paul's saying? He's saying, you are very much a part of what we are doing in Ephesus and in Galatia and in Corinth and in Rome. You are very much a part of what the Holy Spirit is doing throughout what for them was the known world. You are very much, yeah, you're small, five households, 10 households, but you are so much a part of what's going on. And you know why? It's because we're connected. In this case, it's an individual who is the connection for them. One of the great things about being a part of the body of Christ is discovering all the connections that we share. Elsewhere, Paul would write about how it's like a a body where each part of the body, even though the parts are different and they're unique in their function and their purpose, the parts are all connected. Every part is connected to every other part, sometimes in unseen ways, but connected nonetheless. I have one more set of pictures I want to show you today. This is a picture of the Bolivian Hope Center, which is in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Many of you know that our very own Beth Boven is going to be serving on staff at the Bolivian Hope Center, we're hoping in just a couple of months. She is nearing the end of her preparation 
phase of, of her, her missionary assignment, and she's now looking at, at uh, departure dates. We're going to hear more from Beth um, in, in a few weeks, uh, December, when she comes and shares with us, but I'm sure she'd be happy to share with you informally any other time. This is where Beth is headed, the Bolivian Hope Center. And so there's this home, this is what it is, to ministry to children who don't have parents in the city of Cochabamba, Bolivia. They're either orphaned by way of the, the most literal sense, their, their parents have passed, or as is the case for many of them, their parents are incarcerated. Whatever the reason, there's a missionary who has built and established a home there where children are, are housed, where they're cared for, where they're fed, where they're schooled, educated, and where they're given the gospel. And now, HRCC, this congregation here in Downers Grove, Illinois, despite the fact that probably very few, if any of us, have ever been to Bolivia, despite the fact that very few, if any of us, I'm guessing, had heard the name of the city Cochabamba, right? I, I always think it sounds like Cabana, but it's different. Despite the fact that they were previously unknown to us, we are going to have a direct connection to this ministry. Next time they take a Christmas party picture, Beth Bovin is going to be in it. And just like Paul was saying, Epaphras, you know, he's your guy. And he's the one making this happen. We're going to be able to look at those pictures and we're going to say, that's Beth. She's our girl. And she's the one making those things happen. That's going to be a great connection for this congregation. For me personally, the connection actually runs a layer deeper. And it's exciting for me. Because 17 years ago, I was part of a missions team that went to Cochabamba, Bolivia, and through a really, really weird set of circumstances, ended up laying brick on the second story of a building that a missionary was hoping someday would be the residence of the Bolivian Hope Center. And so there's a picture of me in my work boots and my shorts. Yeah, I'm rocking the good look there. And some other guys laying brick in what very plausibly is the room that we saw in the last picture, 17 years ago. Now, I was very surprised this morning, just before church started, when I looked over and saw an old friend of mine, Greg, walk in, who I haven't seen in years. I had no idea was going to stop in today. Greg was on this trip. Greg may very well have been the one taking this picture. But there we are working on the second story, laying brick at a building that would become the Bolivian Hope Center. And I threw in one more picture, don't turn it yet, because I just want you to know that I, your pastor, have the privilege of laying the final brick, the last brick, and it was captured on film. There it is. <laughs> the final brick in the project. With the clouds gathering in the background, Thank you. Thank you. I'm just remembering that we didn't use plumb lines, Greg. Those walls kind of do this. So, Beth, if you're ever asleep in the middle of the night and there's an earthquake, you're going to want to get downstairs real quick and out of that building, okay? But otherwise, the building's good. It's solid. It's good. It's, it's, it's really solid. Man, I, I just, I love connections like that. And I think, I look at this guy 17 years ago, and first of all, I want to know why he's wearing that rag on his head. But the answer is because my head is too big for hats and it was really hot and I needed something there. But he has no idea that he's building a building where 17 years later, a woman from the congregation he pastors 
which he wasn't pastoring then, would be called to go serve on a full-time basis. Come on now. How can you not love the body of Christ? Like, I just don't, I don't think it happens that way unless the Lord is in it. Uh, unless the Lord builds the house, right? The laborers labor in vain. I don't think it works that way unless the Holy Spirit says, yeah, take your silly picture with the bricks, but I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And I just think that part of growing up is recognizing our connection. For HRCC, part of growing up in this season, why don't we get my ugly face off the screen? Just go to the next one. There we go. For HRCC, part of growing up in this season is recognizing that we come together on Sunday morning. It's post-COVID. There's still people worshiping at home. The weather is terrible today. So I'm guessing there's 60 or 70 people in the room today. And it would be easy for us to feel like I think those Colossians probably felt overwhelmed. It's just us. And I can look around this room and I can say, man, I'm grateful for Pastor Marianne. Like, how awesome is she? Like, we're better because she's part of us. I can look around this room and I can, I can look at Karen here and think about, man, I, I love Karen and the way she has served this body so faithfully. I can look around this room and it's easy for me to see value and connectedness with each one of you because it's, you know, because it's us, right? It's us. I love my church. But part of growing up is recognizing just how big the tribe is. Part of growing up is recognizing that as much as I want to believe, there's only one Eddie Bustamante. <laughs> Woohoo! God has given gifts like Eddie to congregations around the world. God has given gifts like Gail to, to, to churches around the world and throughout time. As special as they are to us, they're just, just a sampling, just a taste of what God is doing throughout time and around the world. The tribe's big, y'all. The tribe is big. And part of growing up is recognizing we've got cousins we haven't met yet. We've got aunts and we've got uncles. We've got, we've got great aunts and great uncles. We've got, we've got, in the South, they would say kinfolk. That we just, am I right, Lauren? Is that what you, okay, thank you. Uh, kinfolk that we just haven't, we just haven't met yet. But it's the connections we share that bind us together. And as we grow up in the faith, we discover that there are more of us than maybe we first realized. We are part of a great tribe. Do you remember the end of the book of Revelation where John looks and, and for the first time, this great tribe is actually congregated in one place. And what does he say? He says, behold, I saw a great multitude that nobody could even count. Think about that from John's perspective. He's just a generation or two past the resurrection of Jesus. And he's going, oh my goodness, where did all these folks come from? And I believe somewhere in the corner, somebody says, some of us came from Downers Grove. <laughs> because it was a great multitude. And it stretches around the world. And it stretches throughout time for all eternity. If you are a follower of Jesus today, you've got a place in the group photo. You've got a place as part of that great multitude. They are there for your, your benefit and you are there for our benefit. We are all better. We are all stronger. We are all more like Jesus wants us to be because Latigue is part of our family. Amen? Amen. 
We're all more like Jesus wants us to be because there are Senegalese school children learning to call on his name for the very first time. We're all more like Jesus wants us to be because Dr. Hatch is shepherding a congregation of people in a terrible neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. Because of the, 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 the Ottawa people who are, are gathering for worship today in Green Sky United Methodist Church, we're all more like, children, more like children of Jesus because of the children at the Bolivian Hope Center. We are better because you are part of the family. And you know what families do best when they're together? We eat. Come on now, we eat when we get together, don't we? In about a month, a lot of us are going to gather around tables and everybody's going to have you know, their turkey, but everybody's got Aunt Ethel's recipe for stuffing and there's no stuffing better than Aunt Ethel's recipe for stuffing. Am I right about that? Everybody's got their own, who's got a recipe in their family that you only eat mom's version of this and nobody, Connie, what is it? Blueberry cheesecake. Blueberry cheesecake. When can we come by? Okay. It looks, uh, Gianni's, a couple years ago, you had the nerve to bring samosas to one of our, of our, our, our uh, potlucks. I haven't been the same since then. <laughs> I mean, they were wonderful. They, you can, okay. We're having samosas and we're having blueberry cheesecake <laughs> just as soon as we can. Look, that's what families do. We gather around tables and we eat and look, at some of our tables, it's going to be extravagant because we're wealthy. Latif's table, it's going to be a cup of beans, but it's still going to be food. That's what families do when they get together. They gather around the table and they eat. And one of the reasons for that, it's not just, it's not just food, it's, not just, it's theological, folks. When we eat, we remember. When we eat, we make memories. We notice who's at the table. We notice who's not at the table. We remember that the tribe is, is bigger than the folks that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. We take note of how we've grown in the last year or since the last time we were all together. We notice how we've changed. It's a really, really big part of growing up. Jesus told us to gather around a table. On your way in today, I hope that you gathered the food stuff. If you don't have your communion emblems, you can certainly sneak to the back and grab one right now. But Jesus established this meal at a time when he and his guys were together around the table. And he said, we're going to eat because when we eat, we remember. And I want you to remember. I want you to take note. And I want you to have this meal again and again and again. And every time you do, you're going to notice who else is at the table. Every time you're going to, you do, you're going to notice who's grown a couple inches since the last time you were all together. Every time you do, you're going to notice something more because you know what we're doing? We're growing up. It's what we're doing. We're growing up. And I think Paul loved that. Because he wrote about it an awful lot in his letters. He would write a lot about, you know that meal that Jesus talked about? Let's do that thing. It's time to grow up. And so you can take the wafer out. And you can remember what Jesus said. This is my body. My body is broken for you, but all of you are going to be part of my body. Let's remember that together. You know, at that first 
communion table, we call it the Last Supper, right? They did what we all do when we gather with a family at the table. They sat around for hours, just talking. I think they laughed a lot. We know there were some things that they weren't laughing about, but they spent time together. Meal was over. You ever catch that? The meal was over, and they were still sitting there. Jesus grabbed a cup and said, hey, let's share this together, too. Just before you sit, in your mind's eye, take a look around the table. How big is the tribe? Who's sitting there with you? Can you see the faces of the people who are right now sharing this meal with you on the other side of the world? Can you see the faces of those who have shared it in centuries past? That in spirit are gathered at the table. Epaphras is at this table with us, going, I don't know who y'all are, but I love that you're here. I love that you're here. Let's share the drink together. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be a part of a great big tribe. You have called us, even us, right here at HRCC, to be connected in ways seen and unseen to believers like us from around the world and throughout time. Help us never to forget that and to think, oh, it's just us. Oh, it's just us. Lord, that is, that's what babies believe. But we aren't babies anymore. We're growing up. We're getting bigger. And you're pouring into us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for serving us. Thank you for preparing us for what's next. We receive all of this according to your name. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and everybody says, Amen. Amen.